Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining our latest episode of the Trading Straight podcast here at Reed Smith. My name is Susan Ritala. I am counsel in the asset finance team in the London office, and I'm joined today by Liam Hart, and I will let Liam introduce himself briefly. Hi, everyone. My name is Liam Hart. I work in the uh, projects and construction team in London, and I specialise in disputes in the construction and engineering industry, including disputes with respect to, to ships and, uh, and maritime structures. Right. So we'll have a little chat about a couple of topics in general, the subject matter today is shipbuilding. And I think certainly from my perspective, the shipbuilding market seems to be very busy at the moment. Container ships in particular and LNG carriers demand is is currently very high. And, and reportedly, there are quite a lot of new orders being placed all the time. And every time I open, open trade winds, there is somebody ordering some massive box ship from somewhere. Now, it supposes there's a lot of um, fleet renewal seems to be going on, which is probably contributing to this trend. Clearly, there's a big drive towards greener shipping in, in a lot of ways. Older vessels kind of unable to use alternative fuels and are no longer really that attractive to owners. It's making it more difficult and obviously more expensive to comply with increasing environmental regulation. And nobody really likes to have to spend money. Uh, so we're seeing a fair number of owners coming up with plans to renew their fleets. Uh, an example of this, I suppose, would be the IMO 2020 regulation that requires that uh, there's a limited amount of sulphur per present in fuels um, for ships. And while we've seen a little bit of activity in terms of owners retrofitting scrubbers onto existing ships, that isn't necessarily really going to be enough uh, for everybody and you know there are other ways in which you can make your ships greener and better performing so increasingly owners are looking to renew their fleets and I suppose the other factor that's uh, that's pushing some of this development that we're seeing reported is the ability to finance your ships now recently one of the big developments we've seen in the finance market which is what um, I focus on is that a lot of the big name ship financiers are signing up to the Poseidon principles. And this is basically a framework of um, principles whereby the banks are looking to integrate environmental and climate considerations into their lending decisions, into their documentation, and have a kind of combined view towards how to encourage ship owners to decarbonize and be more uh, environmentally friendly. A lot of the big names are, have signed up for these principles. Obviously, they're not binding, but you know, ABN AMRO, DMB, ING, big ship finance lenders uh, have all signed up. And we're seeing in loan agreements increasingly specific provisions that require borrowers to comply with the Poseidon principles. So clearly, indirectly, for owners... There's benefit in 
um, renewing their fleets and um, and getting ships built that are more compliant with environmental requirements and makes it easier to uh, also then borrow money against your ship if you can demonstrate that you're um, acting in a environmentally friendly way and and have an, have an interest in that. Ultimately, I think though one of the reasons that adds to this busy order book is also obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, a lot of shipbuilding sort of stopped ground to a halt, especially in China and at the beginning of the pandemic where you know, a lot of projects just obviously couldn't, couldn't proceed um, at all. So there's a little bit of the backlog being contributed to by the pandemic. And some of it is really just this increase in demand, especially for, um, for container ships and, uh, and alternative fuel vessels that seems to be driving that. And I, at the moment, doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing down. I'm no market expert, but um, but certainly uh, it's being reported constantly in the press that something something new is being ordered. I guess Liam, I'd be interested to know your experiences of of the pandemic and how that's seen, how that's affected the kind of disputes area and what you've been seeing recently. Thanks, Susan. Well, we've seen a, a really large uptick in the number of inquiries we've had in cases that we're involved with. They involve force majeure principles. So I'm going to talk about that uh, first, but just to give some structure to what I'm going to speak about, I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus on three issues or topics. One's force majeure, two, uh, time bars and, and, and notification provisions under the contracts, and three, good faith obligations, because we're seeing more and more cases that involve those three issues. And I'm just going to wind up by giving sort of four do's and don'ts when you're involved in a project and want to make sure that you're in good shape in, in the event that you fall into a dispute. So first topic, force majeure. So as many of you listening will know, force majeure is a principle whereby in the event of a, an unforeseen circumstance that neither party could have prevented or allowed for, one of the parties to the contract can rely on contractual clause to avoid its obligations under the under the contract. And it's very important to to, to stress that this is, a, under English law, a, a matter of the contract. There's no general principle or, or implication of a term that says that if a situation changes drastically to the disadvantage of the one of the parties, that the disadvantaged party should be allowed to avoid its its obligations. Now, that's that's what English law says about this. It's very different as a matter of, for example, French law or other civil code jurisdictions. And we often deal with civil code lawyers who are surprised to find that even though that there's been a, a very dramatic change in the world economic circumstance brought, brought on by COVID, that that doesn't necessarily mean, mean people can avoid their obligations under the contract. And as a matter of English law, what you have to do is look at the contract and see what the contract says in relation to, you know, these kinds of events. And as many of you will know, um, in standard form contracts, it's quite common to say that in the event of a pandemic or an epidemic, there will be relief from having to deliver a vessel within a certain time period, or you'll be entitled to additional cost, whatever the contract says. But, But the analysis has to be, you know, what does the contract say it's not it's not the case that you can simply claim force majeure it doesn't exist in the ether it, it exists as part of the contract now there is an english law principle called frustration which says that if a the performance of a contract becomes impossible i.e. you simply can't do it 
because you know the physical circumstances don't allow then you can avoid your obligations but that is very rare i mean it, it, you know the case law deals with things like you know buying a ticket to see a performance at a, a concert hall that burns down you know it's that kind of stuff it's something that you physically can't do so frustration really isn't something that you ever see argued very much in the in english courts because because the threshold is so high but we are seeing a lot of inquiries to do with with force majeure we are seeing a lot of inquiries from people who don't necessarily understand that force majeure is a creature of contract. So any kind of analysis as a matter of English law has to focus on the wording of the contract and doesn't exist kind of outside of that. Now, because this because force majeure is a creature of contracts, it, it ties in neatly with, with the second topic, which is time bars and notification under contract. So as a matter of many construction contracts, if you want to claim force majeure or you want to claim relief uh, of any sort or additional payment, you, ne- you will need to give notice within a, a certain defined period of time. Now, if you don't give the notice within that defined period of time and the contract says that you lose your rights in circumstances where you don't give the notice, then you will lose your rights under, as a matter of English law. English law is very draconian in this sense. So if, you, if the parties have said and express terms in the contract that if you don't give notice of an otherwise meritorious claim within a certain period of time if you don't give the notice then you lose your claim now there's there are certain arguments in reality in practice that you can try and use to to avoid that draconian way that english law works but even if you have to rely on those arguments you're always you're all already very much on the back foot in a dispute because you're not say you've got a great claim but you haven't given your notice you have to wade through the initial skirmishing to Dealing with dealing with notice arguments before you can actually get to the meat, the substance of the dispute. So it's very very important that people comply with notice provisions. And the key thing really is that English law and most of the um, common law systems, I think it's fair to say, will expect that sophisticated commercial parties will be bound by what they've written down in their contracts. There's this, the underlying philosophy is that if you have decided to bind yourself in a certain way in a contract, that you're not going to be able to try and avoid being bound in that way further down the line. And that leads on to um, the the third topic that we've seen quite a a, a lot of um, inquiries about and and, and dealing with more on a regular basis, which is good faith obligations. So it always used to be considered that there was no implied duty of good faith in an English law contract. And that was something that would often surprise civil code lawyers. They would find it very surprising that there was no implied duty to act in good faith. But that, that was the English, the English law. Now, that's, that's changed in recent years because of recent authorities, some of which deal with the shipbuilding industry. And one judge in particular who was in the lower courts has recently been promoted to the Supreme Court in England. He's very keen on this idea that you have an implied term of good faith and English law govern contracts. And so that means that whereas force majeure, you know, and time bar slash notification cases, in a sense, are relatively straightforward to deal with in the sense that you, you're looking at what the contract says and construing the, the express words of the contract. Increasingly, we're seeing a situation in relation to good faith where there's a kind of nebulous sense that there is a good faith there's potentially a good faith obligation that's implied into the contract and and 
it's allowing people to try and argue that there are a variety of obligations that stem from the good faith obligation that aren't necessarily spelled out in chapter and verse in the contract. So it's, it's, it's less kind of clear cut than the position was previously. And added into the mix is because it's so recent, it's unclear what, you know, the, the, the exact parameters of this good faith obligation. Now, you're seeing a lot of people trying to use these kinds of creative good faith obligation arguments in arbitrations, which are governed by English law, because they realise or they recognise that perhaps English courts won't be as amenable to to have something you know very wide. But an arbitrator, potentially an arbitrator that comes from a common law tradition, they may be more willing to see good faith obligations um, argued. So in summary, we're seeing a lot of cases that involve arguments about force majeure. We've seen a lot of cases which involve arguments relating to time bars. And increasingly, we're seeing good faith obligations, often in, in arbitration or, or various kind of tiered dispute resolution procedures under, under shipbuilding contracts, argued, even though the arguments are often somewhat woolly and a little bit nebulous. I thought it'd be useful to kind of round up by looking at do's and don'ts, four kind of key do's and don'ts when you're on a project, you know, to prepare yourself potentially for a, a dispute. And number one, you know, it's a statement of the obvious, really, but make sure that you do your homework. Make sure that you're confident that you have the information when you go into the contract that allows you to divide the risk appropriately or, 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 or protect yourself under the contract appropriately. And that's really important, especially in terms of first-of-a-kind projects or where people are having ships built in new ju- jurisdictions or with new partners. So many of the issues that I deal with relate to first-of-a-kind projects, not technically complex first-of-a-kind projects. So the first time things get done, it's often people for it, difficult for people to do it correctly, especially if you're moving to a new jurisdiction where you think you're getting a really great, i.e. cheap deal if you're, if you're the employer from a contractor and the contractor might not necessarily have the expertise or the experience in that particular field. So homework number one. Number two, follow the contracts, especially in relation to, to time bar clauses and giving notice of potential claims. So often, so, so often, we see otherwise meritorious claims become unnecessarily difficult because people haven't given the requisite notice. And what often happens is when people enter into these contracts, even though they've had months and months of quite tortuous negotiations, they refuse or are reluctant to actually operate the notice provisions because they don't want to antagonise the other party to the contract. They say, oh, well, the project is going quite well. We're on a good commercial relationship. We don't want to rock the boat by giving notice of potential claims because that might alienate the other side. Well, you know, that sounds good in theory, but in practice, if you do not give your give the requisite notices of potential claims, then ultimately you could be losing those claims. You know, you could have a meritorious claim that is just dead in the water because you haven't given notice. People often have very rosy relationships early on in, 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 a, in a process, but that can, that can deteriorate. And most fundamentally, I suppose, you've potentially spent weeks or months negotiating these contracts, you know, including the notice provisions. Why is it, having done that, would you just bin off or, or forget the, the clauses that you've negotiated? It, doesn't, it kind of doesn't make sense. So that's something that you can really uh, hammer home to the other side. You know, we all know where we stand if we just operate the contract that we've agreed. So that's, I would say that's probably the most important of the points I'm going to make here. Number three, 
keep records, keep accurate records. So often we have to try and creatively come up with arguments or ways to evidence claims where there's been an, an overrun in, let's say there's been an overrun in the construction cost of a, of a ship. And we know because we're paying for it, let's say we're the, uh, the employer, that we're paying more than we've anticipated. But it's difficult for us to work out where the money's gone. Let's, I, I remember one case I was dealing with in particular that was a, a target cost contract for the construction of a ship. And the ship was way, way over budget. We were brought in, the lawyers were brought in very late in the day to try and help the employer who was having this ship built in a yard in Europe, actually. And the records just weren't good enough to allow us to put forward the disruption claim that we otherwise would have liked to. And it was something as basic as the records for people clocking on and clocking off the yard, you know, the labour records. It's very difficult to see whether Joe Bloggs or or the you know, the continental equivalent of Joe Bloggs was was actually on site at the yard doing particular tasks at a particular time. And it's very, very difficult for us to create a disruption claim. So bear that in mind. And and fourth, involve lawyers early. It doesn't have to be external counsel. It could be your, your in-house team. But I can't stress enough how important it is to involve lawyers early. That will help you with notification and time bar and so on and, you know, understanding the records that you need need to keep. But... I think probably most importantly, it allows you to maintain privilege in the communications that you have once you realize that a a project is potentially starting to go wrong. That is so important if you are thinking of preparing documents that that are lessons learned documents or briefing notes to the board, say, to explain why the project is going, going wrong. I mean, I have worked on a number of projects where we've been brought in, you know, later in the day. And we find that one of the engineers, say, has prepared a document that sets out in a kind of warts and all way why it is the project has, has gone wrong, you know, including good and bad for our client. Now, that document will potentially be discoverable in an arbitration or in, in litigation. And in those circumstances, you can find that you're in a situation where you're kind of damned out your own mouth. It can be very, very problematic to deal with those kinds of documents. So if you involve lawyers early, you can maintain privilege in communications. You can have those discussions as to how you will do things better on this project or how you do it better on on, on future projects. But you won't face a situation where that kind of document ends up in front of a tribunal or a court further further down the line. So, So that's a very important point as well. So to recap, ensure you take special care when you're dealing with first kind projects, new jurisdictions and so on. So do your homework. Secondly, follow the contract. Thirdly, keep records, accurate records. And fourthly, do involve your lawyers early. It doesn't have to be external counsel. can be an internal counsel, but make sure they're involved because it will help you in any number of ways, including with respect to maintaining privilege in your documents. Yeah, I think those are all really interesting points. And I think that especially the, the part about the lawyers and as much as, you know, obviously we like to... We, you know, as much as we like to do the work, they actually, the most important thing is just that somebody is looking at it. I mean, a lot of times, by the time a shipbuilding contract crosses my desk, it has already been negotiated and the parties have spent, you know, weeks or months talking about the specification and the technical stuff. And then, you know, a dispute arises or an issue arises under the project. 
and they realized that you know other parts operative parts of the contract are just not workable you know, i had clients come to us and say okay we need to terminate the shipbuilding contract because the shipyard is insolvent and there is actually no ability in the contract to do that um so you know the the earlier you can get get your lawyers to look at it the better because the lawyers will look at the stuff that the commercial people don't necessarily want to worry about but it's usually the stuff that then becomes the most important when you come to come to a dispute absolutely and and just to pick up on that point i think it's really important to make sure that you don't just agree your dispute resolution clause at five to midnight when you're closing a deal. It's important to think about, you know, worst case scenarios, where, what tribunal do you want to be in front of if, if things do go wrong? And having, you know, a disputes lawyer spend half an hour looking at, you know, your dispute resolution clause can save you years of, of expensive legal fees. So I think that's very important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you very much um, for uh, for listening and we hope you found that useful and look forward to you joining us for our next Trading Straits podcast. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadsmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.